Well, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, but for our initial reading, we'll be reading verses 10 through 13. So if you would stand for me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse number 10, down through verse number 13. And the farm girl is speaking here in these verses. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved. Let me go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grapes appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved." And so the title of the Bible study tonight is this, Maintaining a Testimony of Purity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a chance to sit and uh, just study the Bible and draw some things out of it, some applications from it that can help us be better Christians. And so, Lord, help us all tonight to commit to living a life of purity the way this young lady did, even in a situation where she was surrounded with impurity. And so, Lord, help us to uh, see the importance of maintaining a proper testimony. And, Lord, there's applications to be made there for all of us, whether we're married or single. But, Lord, that testimony needs to stand strong. And so help us, Lord, to see these things tonight and to be challenged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I believe chapter 7 to be a chapter of goodbyes being shared. Solomon is getting ready to let her go home and uh, set her free uh, from the palace. And um, uh, so we have three groups, uh, three times where we find a goodbye. And so much of the outline tonight will be repetitive, and uh, but, but we'll be drawing some different things out as we go, okay? And so, uh, let me just say by way of introduction, your testimony matters. Your testimony matters. And you have to make sure that you're guarding that testimony, uh, whether you think you're being watched or not. Because you just never know when someone's going to see you, and you just don't know that you're being watched. I can't tell you how many times since I've been in church ministry, both here and other churches, where I've had somebody come up to me in a store and say, Hey, Pastor, how you doing? And I look at him and I say, I think to myself, and who are you? No, I don't say that. Oh, hey, it's good to see you. Yeah, you know, you kind of play it off like you know who they are. And you hope they don't look at you and say, Well, what's my name? <laughs> Brother, sister, right? Yeah. Um, but you just play, you know, I played off like I know them and uh, the best I can. I've had that happen, and I've looked at Angela after they've walked away and said, do you know who that was? And they say, she says, I don't have a clue who that person was. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, now that we're streaming online, uh, people uh, watch the services online, and I'll go into a store, and it's happened plenty of times where someone's walked up to me and said, you don't know me, but I know you. I've, I've seen your sermons on the Internet. And listen, I have to be careful. I have to be careful. I'm not allowed, to, and I shouldn't do this anyway, but I can't let my guard down for even one moment and allow myself to 
behave in a way that's less than uh, godly and less than appropriate. And you say, well, I'm not up there behind the pulpit and I'm not on camera three times a week and uh, all that. But you never know when someone who knows you is going to see you and you don't even realize it. How many times have you ever seen someone in a store that you knew and you didn't approach them? And you just saw them, and they went their way, and there was no conversation, and they never saw you, but you saw them. Has that ever happened to you before? Okay, remember that that's happened against you, too. You understand that? People see you and never say a word to you, but they see you, and they're watching you. And we have to maintain a testimony of purity. When you're at work, when you're at school, um, uh, when you're out working your yard, Right When you're just out and about, people are watching you. Uh, you might have that stalker neighbor who looks out their window at you every time you're out working the yard. And you just don't know that, right? So you have to make sure that you are maintaining a testimony that pleases the Lord. Something I remind myself of often is that um, I, must, I must remember that I represent myself as a Christian, I represent my God, and I represent White Oak Baptist Church everywhere I go. You do the same thing. This is your church home. You represent your God, you represent yourself, and you represent your church. And you need to make sure that you put uh, a testimony out there that would not defraud any or all of those. And so um, let's be careful about that. All right, let's jump in tonight and let's look at this. The harem, uh, Solomon, the farm girl, they're all going to share their goodbyes here. And so notice point number one, harem says goodbye. Harem says goodbye. And um, there's some room for, wiggle room for who is speaking here. And I'm going to share with you why I believe this is the way it is in a moment. But if you're marking in your Bible who is speaking when, I believe that the harem is speaking from verse 1 down through verse number 5. And again, the harem would be Solomon's 140, for lack of a better word, wives. So 140 queens, 140 wives. And um, they're speaking from 1 down through verse 5. And I'll show you at the end of verse 5 why I believe it's the harem speaking here. Look at chapter 7, verse number 1. And we see here uh, how they're speaking. It says, How beautiful are thy feet with shoes. The harem is speaking to the farm girl, telling her goodbye here. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. The belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are, with, that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Abathrabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like caramel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. Now that last part of verse 5 would tell me that the king cannot be speaking because the king is held in the galleries. The king was apparently taking care of some sort of business in the galleries and so 
the harem here would seem to be speaking in his place to this girl. Let me give you an A to B here, and I'll give them to you back to back. Notice letter A, finally some respect. Finally some respect. Now, the whole book, uh, it would seem, and then letter B, they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. All right, finally some respect. They still didn't get it. The whole book, the harem has had their guard up against this girl. And they, they did not want to have anything to do with her at the beginning of the book because she was a threat to them. Um, they were jealous over their man the way any woman would be jealous over their man. And Solomon was just continuing to marry and marry more women. And I think they wanted to cut it off at some point and say, there's 140 of us. We don't need anyone else. In comes this girl that looks different than them. And they all felt threatened by her. And so she's ousted and sort of pushed to the side. And uh, you can see this guard, immediate guard that's up at the beginning of the book. And then you sort of see slowly them warming up to the idea, well, now that she's getting ready to leave the palace, and now that she's not a threat to them anymore, they are finally showing her some respect. And we see that because chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, as odd as the compliments are, and really as perverse as they are, nevertheless, they are paying her compliments. Now, they're complimenting her beauty in a sexual way, but they are showing her respect. They are saying, hey... You're all right with us. But, but, in all of that, the way they showed her respect was still not right. They're, they're saying, listen, your, your, your belly button works as a goblet for liquor. That's strip club talk. Right? That's not uh, the way that a Christian girl should get talked to. Um, that's not right. And so, uh, in fact, turn back over with me to... Song of Solomon, chapter number 1. Now, if you're watching this online, uh, these won't be up on the screen. These were added later here. But look back at chapter 1. We've looked at this a couple of times throughout the study. Uh, You might say, well, why would girls talk to another girl like this? And I'm going to answer that question by showing you how these girls talked about Solomon. Look at chapter 1 and look at verse number uh, 2. It says here, The harem is speaking about Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Look how sensual and sexual and physical these girls are. Verse 3, Because of the savor of thy good ointment, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, draw me, we will run after thee, uh, the king hath brought me into his chambers. See the sexual talk here. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright uh, love thee. And so we see here that they were sexual in their language about Solomon. And there's other uh, areas I could show you the same thing in the book where the harem is describing Solomon in ways that are just physical in nature. So how did they go about showing respect when they respected someone? They talked about their physical attributes, their physical beauty. So here they've come around and they have accepted the farm girl as someone that is to be hailed and respected and praised. And so how do they go about describing it? Well, in the only way they know how. The only way they know how. They do it in terms that are physical. 
Now, here's the application I want to take for us this evening. Um, It may be that the world around you gets to a place where they can respect you, but they still don't understand you. Let me say that again. You may get to a place where the world respects you, but they still don't understand you. They don't understand why you, why you would go to church three times a week. They don't understand why you would put 10% or more of your money in an offering plate uh, instead of uh, uh, spending it on things that are more leisurely and fun. They don't understand uh, why you would live a lifestyle that just seems so strict and different than they do. They don't understand it, but it ought to be that over a period of time when they're around you, they go from being hostile toward you to respecting you. They respect you. Turn over to Proverbs chapter number 22. Proverbs chapter 22. If you're in Song of Solomon, that would be two books to the left. Proverbs chapter number 22. And look at verse number 1 with me. The Bible says there, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. A good name is rather to be chosen. I would ask you, what kind of name do you have with your lost family? What kind of name do you have with your lost co-workers? What kind of name do you have in your neighborhood? Uh, What kind of name do you have around town? What kind of name do you have in your kid's uh, baseball league? Are you that parent who's just always uh, ribbing and bothering the refs or the umps and, 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 and constantly causing problems? And are, are you known as someone who is less than Christian? You see, you have to understand that these girls here, they, they, they did not understand her, her purity, but they respected it. And that is at least a step in the right direction. That's a step in the right direction. These girls got to the place where they didn't understand all she stood for, but they respected her. And you know what that did? That provided better grounds for her to be able, that provided credibility rather for her uh, to be able to share. Our testimony, I'll, I'll just say this, our testimony is as important and in some ways more important than our message. Our testimony is as important and in some ways more important than our message. If I'm going to work and I'm uh, clocking in late and I'm uh, cheating the company on the time and I'm turning in a less than acceptable performance and I'm complaining about the boss and I'm running down my family at work and I'm just a low character person, but then I want to tell you about Jesus they're going to look at you and say, well, why would I want to have anything to do with your Jesus? You, you, if, if, if this is what Jesus provides, I'm already ahead of you. You see the problem here? Our testimony, now listen, our message is important. And, and, I, and, and, and I, I want to make that clear. Our message, it's not just enough to share the gospel with the way you live. You, you have to share it with the way you live and with your lips. But if you're sharing it with your lips, 
but your lifestyle is that that's less than pleasing of the Lord, then you're going to discredit your message. So we see here she is being told goodbye by the harem. Uh, they're respecting her finally. They still didn't get it. Uh, listen, sometimes people are going to pay you compliments that just seem really odd, especially as a Christian. It may not make sense as a Christian. And they're speaking to you in their language. They're, uh, they're speaking to you in their way. Uh, and listen, uh, you ought to work hard that your testimony overcomes any disrespect they would offer. Number two, Solomon says goodbye. Solomon says goodbye. Solomon must have escaped from the galleries there, and he makes his way out, and he's going to tell goodbye to the farm girl. And we find that in verses 6 through 9. Look there, it says, and, and by the way, the reason why I believe Solomon is speaking to the farm girl from 6 to 9 is because a lot of this language would seem to be repetitive. And so verse 5 seems to be the break. The king is held in his galleries. Verse 6 comes out, and you have much of the same type of speech. And so it would seem to be here that maybe someone else is coming in and speaking. We may get to heaven and God might say, hey, you got that part wrong. That's okay, uh, but indulge me here. Verse 6 through 9 says, How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. And so he's describing her as a love, one of his loves. Okay, verse 7, This, is, uh, this thy stature is like a palm tree, and thy breasts to cluster of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the bowels thereof. Now also uh, thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples, and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. And so he's telling her goodbye, and we see letter A, finally, uh, some respect. Finally, some respect. And letter B, he still didn't get it. He still didn't get it. Same subpoints. all right? Finally, some respect, and he still didn't get it. What, what has this farm girl tried to do the entire time she's been in the palace? She's tried to be, watch this now, she's tried to be a missionary of morality. Every time she opens up her mouth and speaks, there is a sharp contrast to how she describes morality and the way the harem and Solomon describe morality. In fact, usually when um, Solomon and the harem open their mouth, their words are immoral and her words are moral. And so she's gone in and had to deal with a barrage of immorality thrown her way and she's tried to share her light of morality. She's tried to be a missionary of morality to both Solomon and the harem in a very hostile situation. And I guarantee you, she left the palace feeling like a failure. Wouldn't have you? They're telling you goodbye and they can't quit talking about your body. Hashtag me too. <laughs> The farm girl could have said that, couldn't have she? Uh, knock it off. And here's what I want to draw out of this for you all before we move on to number three here. Um, we don't know how the, the harem, how the, the bride, the 80 wives and 60 concubines turned out. We don't know if they ever actually got it. But we do know that Solomon finally got it. Solomon finally got it. In fact, 
the book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon in his old age. And you know what Solomon has done at this point in his life? He's gotten it back on track for the Lord. He calls himself the preacher of preachers. Does he not? And he says that all of that stuff is vanity. It's all vanity. I'm left to wonder if the farm girl had anything to do with him beginning to turn his life back around. I don't know. But I know this. When the farm girl left, she probably thought that Solomon was a dirty old man and probably thought there was no hope. There was no hope for him. Um, You are to be a missionary of morality even if you feel that it is a waste of time. Because you never know how God is going to use your testimony to help get someone else turned around later. Later. She wasn't going to bend. She wasn't going to budge. She wasn't going to change. Solomon at this point is so steeped in filthy talk and a filthy lifestyle that he knew nothing other than how to say goodbye in his filthy way. And years later, he would get it turned back around. I wonder, I I don't know this, I wonder if the farm girl lived long enough to see Solomon get it turned back around. I wonder if later um, she realized that Solomon had put his life back in order. And listen, the book of Song of Solomon was written by Solomon. By Solomon. Now, someone would ask, why would Solomon write a book that portrayed him uh, in such a bad way? And the answer is, didn't Jonah do the same thing? Have you ever read the book of Jonah? You ever read the end of the book of Jonah? Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, and you know where Jonah leaves himself at the end of his own book? Throwing a pity party for himself. Jonah did not paint himself in the best light either. I I have a strong belief that this young lady left the palace, and Solomon was so impressed by one woman in the entire kingdom that told him no, uh, that he said, I've got, I've got to write about this. And uh, the Lord used that writing and told him even what to write. And it was turned into a play. And what a powerful play. Let me just say this. When you stand up for what's right and everyone else around you is doing wrong, but you do right, everyone else around you is doing wrong, and you just keep doing right, people take notice. People take notice. Now, they may not get it. They may not understand it. They, they probably won't even like you for it. But at the end of the day, you will gain their respect and they'll say, wow, that person's quite different. That person's quite different. And Solomon says his goodbye. He didn't get it, at least not here. But this young lady, this young lady, she stayed her course. And even though she must have felt like a failure when she left the palace... She was not a failure because Solomon would get his life turned around because of her testimony. Number three, notice, the farm girl says goodbye. The farm girl says goodbye. Now, chapter 7, verse 10, down through chapter 8, verse 4, is where she says goodbye. And we're going to look at the first four verses. Yeah, we'll have time. We're going to look at the first four verses of chapter 8 here in just a moment, which are really a recap of everything she's tried to teach 
Solomon and the harem. Uh, but let's take a few minutes and look at, um, uh, look at verses 10 through 13. Look with me at verse number 10. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field, let us lodge in the villages, let us get up early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine flourish, uh, whether the tender grapes appear and the pomegranate, uh, the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves, the mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my Beloved, Let me give you an A and a B here. Notice letter A. She stood strong. She stood strong. Look back at verse number 10. She says to the harem and she says to Solomon, I'm a taken woman. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Uh, here, uh, she, what she's saying, she's saying, look guys, I'm claimed. I told you. At the very beginning when I came in the palace, and I'm still telling you now, I have a, a man in my life I love, and I love deeply, and I love dearly. And Solomon, it isn't you. And, and Harem, it isn't Solomon. And, and I'm a taken woman. She stood strong. She did not back down. She stayed the course. And I would just say to you, Christian, today, that if you're going to maintain a testimony of purity, you must remember who it is you're being pure for. And listen, uh, it isn't just another human being. If you're married in here this evening, your spouse. But beyond your spouse, you're to stay pure for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and listen, uh, please hear what I'm about to say. Um, occasionally, a husband or wife will get themselves off track and will do something that's immoral and wrong. And I pray that never happens in your marriage. But it does happen in marriages. Husbands cheat on wives, and wives cheat on husbands. And um, I've seen it happen in churches before. Uh, I, I know of situations where it has happened, and here is what can happen, okay? If our purity is based on our spouse's purity, then when they mess up, then we can be under the false conclusion that that gives us grounds to go and seek vengeance and do the same thing back to them. You see the trap there? I'll be pure toward you as long as you are pure toward me. And then we find out that our spouse has been less than faithful. And we want to show them how this feel, so we're going to go do it back to them. My friend, if your purity is based on your spouse, then your purity is based on a flawed person. Now listen, I pray that in your marriage you both are faithful to each other all the way to the grave. And I think for most of you in here that's going to be the case. But it probably won't be for everyone in the room. If I'm standing strong and my purity is not based on Angela, but it's based on God, then it doesn't matter what Angela does to me or I do to Angela. Our eyes should be on the Lord. I am to live pure for Him because He's worthy. He's worthy. This young lady said, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She said, I have stood strong in the face of evil. I'm not going to back down. Now, before we get out of this book, boy, I think it's important that I just hammer this home one more time. Um, the world has made being immoral or sinful or dirty, it's made it into trendy and cool and woke. And can I tell you that dirt is dirt whether the world calls it cool or not. 
And the world might say it is it is the end trendy thing to sleep around before you get married. The Bible still calls that sin. Uh, the world might say that, hey, if your spouse is not taking care of your needs, then you go look around for someone who will. And, hey, go get a divorce and marry someone else. But the Bible still says that divorce is not God's will, not God's plan. The world might very well say uh, to uh, you that it's okay for a man to be with a man and a woman to be with a woman. And the world might even try to call you a hate, per, a hateful uh, person, a, a hate monger, or uh, label you some way if you don't go along with what they say. Uh, but dirt is still dirt. Sin is still sin. Wrong is still wrong. And my friend, we're to hold to a standard of purity, and it doesn't matter what the world calls us or, or, or labels us. We're to stand strong. Here this woman is in a spot where she's being pushed hard to do wrong. And she stood strong. There's a teenage girl who attended a public school. And in the 11th grade, in her particular class, she was the only girl who had not given up her virginity. And every Monday morning they would come to school and the other girls in that school would talk about whether or not they had scored over the weekend. And uh, they would all go around and talk about that and it made this uh, uh, Christian girl uncomfortable there in her public school. And they would always pick on her about how she had never scored. She had never scored. And uh, after about four or five months of hearing this and just sitting there silently enduring it, one day after all that she finally spoke up and she looked at the girls and she said, here's the reality. Anytime I want, I can be like you all. But you all will never get to be like me. She stood strong. Don't cave to the peer pressure. Let her be. We see here, she got what she wanted. She got what she wanted. And what did she get? She got to leave. She got to get out of that bad situation, get out of the palace. And uh, as she's leaving the palace, um, uh, chapter uh, number 7, verse number 11, she's calling out for her beloved, trying to find him. She says, come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyard. Let us see if the vine flourish. All right, now you notice that there. Let us see if the vine flourish. Let's see if it's the right time. Whether the tender grape appear. And remember, she's a gardener, a farmer uh, in a vineyard. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of analogies about vineyards and, and vines and fruit of the vine here in the book. She's saying here, let us see if the vine flourisheth, uh, whether the tender grapes appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. You know what she's saying? When the time is right, we'll have sex. That's what she's saying right here. She's saying, I will give you my loves when these things are right. When uh, the fruit is ripe on the vine. The world wants to tell you that you need to see how compatible you are with someone prior to marriage. And listen, I agree with that to a point. I think you should see if you're emotionally compatible and if you're spiritually compatible and if you're mentally compatible. Uh, but when it comes to being physically compatible, no, you're not to see if you're physically compatible prior to marriage. You're to wait prior to marriage. You can find out how physically compatible you are 
at that wedding night, after you have consummated your marriage. And she says in verse number 12, as she's leaving, let's see if the time is right. Let's see if these fruits have arrived on the vine. And if they have, I will give thee my love. Look at verse 13. We see, and this is really romantic, the mandrakes give a smell. Now, I did some looking into a mandrake this week, and you may remember that word mandrakes in the story of Leah and Rachel with Jacob. Jacob was married to both of those women, and uh, Jacob uh, was coming home, and Leah wanted uh, to have her man for that evening, and uh, Jacob preferred Rachel over Leah, and Leah didn't get Jacob very often, and so Leah said, here are some mandrakes, but I get to have him tonight. And so you see a connection there with mandrakes and sexuality. She says here, the mandrakes give a smell. And what that means is uh, you, you may picture a romantic evening between a husband and wife, uh, wife where the lights are dimly lit and there's rose petals put out and a scent in the air, uh, maybe on a getaway. And that mandrakes would have put off a scent in the air that was um, uh, meant to draw uh, uh, draw emotions out, feelings out, and so mandrakes would be crushed up, and that odor would create an aroma. It would create an ambiance uh, in the room. She says here, the mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee. Oh, my beloved. Really quick here, uh, pleasant fruits. And I believe there's a double a meaning here in this. Obviously, uh, when a man together in union, uh, they're fruitful. Uh, God intended for that to be fruitful and that children are born from that relationship. But I'll just also, and so I believe that's the interpretation, but I'll make this application uh, that you ought to marry someone, and this is the single people either watching online or in the room, you ought to marry someone who is going to benefit you and be fruitful to be married to. I see a lot of people who will marry a person who is really dead weight. I've looked at a man and said, what are you doing with her? And I've looked at a woman and said, what are you doing with him? They're just going to hold you back and... They're just going to cause you problems, and there's going to be struggles there. And you make sure you pick someone in life who's going to push you, uh, push you to be the best version of yourself. If you're in here tonight and you're married, you push your spouse, and I don't mean yell at them and be mean to them and berate them and pretend to be the Holy Spirit in their life, but you encourage them and motivate them uh, to produce fruit for the Lord, and you make that marriage fruitful. Sometimes when Angela's getting on me, I'll look at her and say, Okay, Holy Spirit, whatever you say. Amen? Um, yeah. How many of you here ever felt like your spouse is the Holy Spirit in your life, prompting you and telling you when you do wrong? Amen? Uh, yep. Okay. The rest of you just aren't bold enough to raise your hand. Um, uh, but um, the farm girl, she says goodbye. She's looking, uh, she's looking as she's leaving the palace, and she's looking for that beloved of hers, and she's saying, let's see if it's time to get married. Number four, number four, we see the farm girl's guidance, the farm girl's guidance. Now, I love the first four verses of chapter uh, eight, and I really believe that if you wanted to sum up the message that the farm girl is giving to the harem, you could sum up her entire message to them, the harem and Solomon, in these four verses. In fact, all four of these that we'll look at 
right here our review from what we've looked at as we've covered the book. So, again, the end of chapter number 7, she's looking out of the palace as she's walking out the door. She's looking out of the palace for her beloved. And a little bit of that at the beginning of chapter 8. But then when you get to verse 2, you get the idea that maybe she's... Uh, double speaking here. She's looking for her fiance, but she's also sharing advice to the harem and Solomon. So letter A, we see uh, brotherly treatment. Brotherly treatment. Look at verse number 1. She says, Oh, that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breast of my mother. Uh, when I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. Now, I don't fully understand the cultural ramifications of verse number one. I'll admit that up front. And so I'm going to speculate as to what I think verse number one means. I think what she's saying here is, if you were my brother, I would know exactly where to find you. If you were my brother, now again, the whole language about you know, uh, a, a breastfeeding from, I wish you were like my brother that had breast, breastfed from, from mom here. Uh, that part of the language is a little bit weird, okay? I don't really, I don't talk in those terms. I don't think anyone here talks in those terms. Uh, but again, I don't know the culture of that day. And again, this is being written as a, a musical. And so maybe there was something poetic in the cultural time uh, of why Solomon would have included that here. But uh, in, his, in, in this, uh, but what she, I believe she's saying is, about her fiance, I wish that you were like my brother. I would know exactly where to find you. But there's another uh, application here or possible interpretation. Throughout the book, what did we find him calling her? He said, my sister, my spouse. My sister, my spouse. And we talked about throughout that uh, part of the book how that you need to uh, understand, you need to marry God, you need to uh, be with someone that loves God, and you need to understand that, yes, they are your spouse, but they're also your brother and sister in the Lord, and they are a child of the King of Heaven. And so she's saying here, I wish you were like my brother. And there's this brotherly treatment, this brotherly treatment. You know, I love my wife. I love every aspect of being married. Um, I, I love the, the different viewpoints that are brought uh, into into the marriage. And my wife is able to say to me, have you considered this and that? And she's able to see things from a different angle and even oftentimes from an emotional angle uh, that I'm not able to understand. And listen, there are times where her bringing in a different angle or me bringing in a different angle can cause conflict that we have to work through and resolve. But can I just tell you one of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of being married is that I feel like I am married to someone who deeply loves God. Deeply loves God. And this person I'm married to, my wife, has a strong relationship with her Savior. To be honest, folks, there's times where I wake up and I really don't want to read my Bible, but I'll walk into the kitchen and see my wife reading her Bible. And I say, well, I guess I should be her spiritual leader and go read my Bible. Amen. There are times where I want to mishandle a situation or a person and she'll talk me off the ledge because she deeply loves the Lord. And I would say that um, you make sure that you marry someone uh, uh, if you're single in here, that you marry someone who has a deep love 
for the Lord. So she's looking back at the harem. She's also talking uh, uh, as she's trying to find her fiancé here. And uh, we see brotherly treatment. Let her be, we see motherly counsel. Motherly counsel. Look at verse number 2. You may remember that first dream she had. Look back at verse 2. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house. Who would instruct me? I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranates. And so we would look at that as like an apple cider. Here it's a pomegranate cider. But what she's saying, she said, I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house. We talked about this already, the importance of in the process. Whether they're saved or lost, if they're not living a lifestyle that's just wicked and rotten and away from God, uh, you make sure you include your parents in the process. And there's that motherly counsel. I'll also say this here, that if you don't have a mother in your life or a father in your life that you can lean on for counsel, then you make sure you get a motherly or fatherly type Christian figure in your life to help guide you through that. One mistake I see many, many Christians make is that they think they can figure out the Christian life on their own. How many of you ever made that mistake before, trying to figure out the Christian life on your own? Don't do that. Be self-aware enough to know that you need counsel. You need counsel. Go get it. Ask for it. And don't shop around for counsel till you get you hear what you want. Right? Have someone push back on your ideas, uh, whatever decision-making uh, you have there, and seek out godly counsel. And uh, this girl was just as pure as the, as the driven snow, and she wanted motherly counsel. Let her see. Notice romantic relationships. Romantic relationships. Look at verse 3. She says here, His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. There is that intimacy, that emotional closeness. And then number four, notice godly direction. Godly direction. So as she's leaving the palace, she turns to the harem on her way out the door, and she gives them one final charge. Look at verse 5. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love until he pleases. Don't stir up love. Don't force the issue. Don't force the issue. You make sure you wait, and when the time is right, it will happen. Let's not force love. Um, whether you're in here tonight and you're a widow or widower, we have a handful of those in here, uh, You may, uh, or you may be in here uh, tonight and you are single and have never been married or you believe that you're single in a way that God would allow you to get remarried, let me just take a moment and speak to all that crowd in the room. Okay, If you're watching online and that fits you, then uh, make sure you're listening intently here. It, it will be a happy day in your life when you can get yourself to a place where you are content being single. Ask God to help you to be content being single. That doesn't mean that you tell God, I'm giving up on being married. You just say, Lord, I'm content living my life without a man or woman in it. And if you want to bring someone along, I will be ready spiritually when you are ready for that time. I'm going to trust God's time on it. And I'm not going to rush it. And I'm not going to allow it to 
all consume me. One of the most dangerous things you can do is be consumed by it. Because if you're consumed by it and you're thinking about it all the time, then uh, one of two things are going to happen. Either, number one, you're going to drive yourself crazy. You're going to drive yourself crazy. Or, number two, you're going to end up jumping into a relationship that God didn't have planned because you're desperate. Both of those are not good. Both of those are not good. Learn to be content with just walking with God. Uh, learn to be content and trust God that His timing is best. And so we see here godly direction. Godly direction. Don't stir up love. Don't force the issue. Well, that brings us to the end of Act 2. The curtain closes. When the curtain comes up on this play next week, we'll be in Act 3, and the setting will be a wedding. And so uh, we're not going to have a an actual wedding, but we're going to look at a wedding in the Bible. That'll be chapter 8, verse 5, down through the end of the chapter. We have a lot of good things we're going to draw out of that for you. I think it'll be an encouragement to you. So I hope you'll be here.